Are you looking for a word from God today? If so, First Baptist Dallas is glad to present this dynamic message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. Dr. Jeffers is a premier Bible teacher, pastor, and author whose practical applications of God's truth help guide and encourage those who seek to know and follow the Lord Jesus. I know you'll be blessed. And now, the message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. Pastor Tim Keller has said, idolatry is the sin beneath every other sin. When I put a competing desire above God and his will for my life, I am sinning. I am guilty of loving something or someone more than I love God's. I think that's a good comment. Idolatry is the sin beneath every other sin. If that's true, then it should be no surprise that the very first of the Ten Commandments God gave us was rooting out idolatry from our lives. You shall have no other gods before me. And that's what we're going to talk about today for a few moments. If you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, beginning with verse 1, as we discover why it is we are to esteem God alone. You know, I have done wedding ceremonies for <clears throat> about 45 years, and uh, I ask a couple to do a lot of things, to commit to a lot of things. But one thing I ask them to commit to is to love and cherish the other person and forsaking all others to be faithful to that other person alone. What am I asking? I'm asking them to esteem one another. And that's really what the first commandment is about. It's about esteeming God alone. What does that word esteem mean? When you look up the English word in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, it means to set a high value on, to regard, to prize accordingly. Now that's the English word, but the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And the primary Hebrew word for esteem is eric, eric. And it literally means to arrange things and to put them in order. When it comes to another person, it means to give priority to somebody by placing them first in a series. Now, you listen to our orchestra every week. What a great orchestra we have. Perhaps you've heard a symphony orchestra or you've heard a band play before. If you have, you understand the concept of Eric, to arrange things in order. For example, there may be several trumpet players. There may be five trumpet players in an orchestra, but there's only one that can occupy what we call the first chair. The first chair is the best trumpet player, the one who is esteemed above all others. If you're not into symphonies and bands, you're probably gonna watch a football game this afternoon. And both teams are going to have what they call a starting quarterback. Now, there's a second string quarterback. There may be a third one in the reserve, but there's one person who is the starting quarterback in the lineup. 
That's what this word esteem means. It means to place first in order of priority. <clears throat> now, the writer of Proverbs 31 demonstrates that when he's describing the woman of excellence. Referring to his own wife, he said, a wife of excellence who can find her worth is far above jewels. And then he exclaims about his own wife, many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. In other words, you are in first chair. You have first place. That's what God is commanding in verse three when he said, you are to have no other gods before me. I'm to be first place in your life. Now, why is it we ought to esteem God and put him in first place? I want you to notice in these first three verses what God says. Then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Will you notice in verse two, he gives us four reasons that we are to have no other gods before him. The reason is in verse two, the command is in verse three. Four reasons to esteem God alone. Two have to do with who God is. The next two have to do with what God has done. First of all, we're to put God in first place because God is our creator. He said, I am the Lord. That word translated Lord is the word Yahweh, the Hebrew word Yahweh, the most holy name for God. Remember in Exodus 3, when God first appeared to Moses in the burning bush and commanded him to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. And Moses said, well, who am I to tell Pharaoh? Uh, who am I to tell him that uh, sent me to give him that command? And what did God say? He said, you just tell him, I am sent you. I am who I am. That's what Yahweh means. I am the self-existent, the eternal, the sovereign God. That's who God is. And that's why we're to esteem him alone. Remember the old Saturday night live show, the uh, Saturday night news update when Chevy Chase was the lead comedian. Remember how he opened that segment? He said, good evening, I'm Chevy Chase and you're not. <laughs> well, you know, that's what God is saying here. Why are you to worship me alone? I am self-existent. I am self-sustaining. I am eternal. I am sovereign and you're not. That's why you are to worship me. I am the creator. Just think for a moment about the vastness of this creation. If you want to see the power of God and why we should esteem him alone, think about this universe. You know, astronomers have been able to use powerful telescopes and see objects, planets, drones maybe in the sky, I don't know, but they're probably planets and stars that are four billion light years away. Now that's an amazing thing. How far is a light year? A light year is how far light can travel in a year. Now you know light travels at 186,000 miles a second. So a light year is how far light travels in one year but we're able to see objects four billion light years away. You know how far that is? That is 25 
quintillion miles. That is a 25 with 24 zeros behind it. And that doesn't even measure the size of the universe. That's just how far we can see right now. To put it in another way, imagine you were able to get in a spacecraft that traveled 186,000 miles a second. Can you imagine such a thing? If you got in that spacecraft going 186 miles a second, it would take you 1.3 seconds to get to the moon. It would take you 8.3 seconds to get to the sun, which is 93 million miles away. But it would take you 200,000 years, going 186,000 miles a second, just to get to the edge of our Milky Way galaxy. And our Milky Way galaxy is just one of hundreds of millions, perhaps billions of galaxies in the universe. Who in the world made all of that? How did that happen? Well, listen to the secularists, and they've got an idea. The late physicist, Stephen Hawking. Remember Stephen Hawking? He had what he called the theory of everything. He said, my proposal is the statement that the universe is a closed system. We don't need to suppose that there's something outside the universe which is not subject to its law. It is the claim that the laws of science are sufficient to explain the universe. In other words, all that exists can be explained through mathematical equations, Hawking says. Well, then where is God in all of this? Hawking admitting, admitted that's one answer he didn't have. He said, even if we had a theory of everything, we would be left with one final question. What is it that breathes fire into the mathematical equations and makes a universe for them to describe. If I knew that, then I would know everything important. What is it that breathes fire into these equations? The answer is not an it, it is a who. It is Jehovah God, Yahweh, the creator of all. First Colossians 1, 15 through 17 says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation, for by him, Jesus, all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or rulers or dominions or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. Why do we esteem God alone? He is our creator, not just of the universe. He is the creator of you and me. Psalm 100 and verse three says, the Lord, he himself is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves for we are his people and we are the sheep of his pasture. God gives us another reason to put him in first place. Not only is our creator, he is our covenant maker. He is our covenant maker. God is not just some distant deity. He says to the Israelites and to us, I am the Lord, your God. I want a relationship with you. God didn't just create this world and you and leave us to our own. He wants to have a friendship with us, but he wants more than a friendship. He wants an intimate relationship with every one of us. And that is the most incomprehensible thing to me, to think that the God who made all of this cares about you and cares about me and wants a relationship with us. And he took the first step in establishing that relationship. 
You know, whoever takes the first step in initiating a relationship is really going out on a limb. He's taking a chance. Now, I remember when I made my first move toward Amy. It was in the ninth grade and I decided I didn't want her just to be somebody who sat in front of me in math class. I didn't want to just be her friend. I wanted to be something more. And so one day I screwed up the courage to ask her out on a date in the ninth grade. Now, do you remember dating in the ninth grade? What it consisted of, of it would be parents taking you and dropping you off at a restaurant, then picking you up and dropping you off at a movie. But I had it all planned out for that Friday night. First, I had my parents drive us to El Phoenix at North Park, and we had dinner while my parents sat at another table. <laughs> then we got into their car and they drove us to the Esquire Theater, where we walked into the movie and sat there through the movie. And I realized I'd planned out the evening that I was only gonna have a few minutes to talk to Amy by myself. So I'm sitting through that movie with her and I'm starting to sweat profusely as I try to think up exactly what I'm gonna try to say to lure her into a relationship with me. The movie finally, finally comes to an end. The end, and I knew, boy, this is it, buddy. You better go for it. This is your only chance. So we're walking out of the movie theater. My parents are waiting out in the station wagon and I stop Amy in the foyer before we go through the doors. And I said, Amy, could I talk to you about something? She said, sure. And I said, well, I've got a problem and I don't know what to do about it. And she's so kind and sympathetic. She looked real concerned. She said, oh, what, what's the problem? I said, well, I like this girl in our class and I don't know how to tell her that I like her. And she said, well, who is it? And I said, her name is Amy. And she said, oh, Amy, and she named another girl in the class. <laughs> I said, no, it's Amy Renard, it's you. Cue the violin, everybody say, aw. <laughs> now, she could have at that moment, she could have, as the country western song says, stomped on my aorta. She could, have, she could have said, oh, Robert, I like you too as a friend. Those are three words no adolescent boy ever wants to hear. No adolescent boy wants a friend. They want something more. But she didn't say that. She didn't say, I like you as a friend. You know what she said? It's none of your business. But trust me, she was interested in being more than a friend. And she certainly has become much more than a friend. You know, that was taking a risk to establish a relationship. I didn't know exactly how she was gonna respond. Now, in a much more serious way, God has done that. He has set his affection on us. Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, he made the first move. He sent Christ to die for us. He is our covenant maker. He wants a relationship with us. In fact, 2 Corinthians 1, verses 21 to 22, talks about the steps God went through to make a relationship with us. Look at this. Now he, that is God, who establishes us with you, 
is Christ and anointed us is God. God took the initiative. He established a relationship with Christ and he also sealed us, verse 22, and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. God took the initiative. He sent Christ. He sent his Holy Spirit as a gift. You could translate that as a down payment, as an earnest, or as a wedding ring, a ring, a sign, an engagement ring that we are his, and one day he's going to come and take us into himself. He's coming for the bride, the church of Jesus Christ, to take the bride, to unite the bride with the groom, Jesus Christ himself. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you unto myself. God took the initiative. He is our covenant maker. Don't ever gloss over that. Don't ever become hardened to that idea. The creator of the universe loves you and wants a relationship with you. Why do we esteem God and God alone? He is not only our creator and covenant maker. Notice what he's done for us. Two things. He is our redeemer. We see this again in verse two of Exodus 20 when God said, I am the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God has released us from the prison house of slavery to sin and to Satan. Uh, Paul expressed it this way in Colossians 1, 13 and 14. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You've heard me talk about that word redemption, redeem, exagorazo. It means out of, ex, the agora, the marketplace. When slaves were sold and purchased. It was done in the Agora, the forum. If you wanted to purchase a slave, you would pay whatever the price was and you would redeem him, exagorazo him, and take him out of the marketplace to become your servant. That's what God did for us. He paid the price for our redemption from Satan and sin, and the price was the blood of Jesus Christ himself. He has paid that price for us because he loves us in spite of what we have done. Even though we've gone astray from him, he has never lost his love for us. When I think about this idea of redemption, I think about the story of the little boy who spent weeks working on a model sailboat, a little red sailboat. And the day came that he had finished the project and he was eager to test it out. So he took it down to the local pond. He put it into the water to see if it floated. A gust of wind came and caught the sails and took that sailboat far from him. The little boy was heartbroken. Something he had spent so much time building was now lost forever. A few weeks later, he was walking down the street and he saw in the window of the toy store his red sailboat. He couldn't believe it. He was overjoyed. He thought he would never see it again. And he went in and explained to the store owner that that was his sailboat. And could he please have it back? The store owner said he didn't know anything about that. All he knew was he had paid for the boat himself. And if the little boy wanted it, it would cost him. It was $14. So the boy reached into his pocket pulled out a sweaty wad of dollar bills, counted out $14, gave it to the man, and he took that sailboat. 
and he held it close to his chest. As he walked down the sidewalk, he said, you're mine twice now. Once because I made you, and now because I bought you. That's what God says to us. You belong to me. First, because I made you. But even though the winds of sin carried you away far from me, I never gave up hope. And I purchased you. I bought you, not with dollar bills. I bought you with the blood of my son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know? You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. That's why we worship God alone, because he made us and he redeemed us. He bought us. And finally, we're to esteem God alone because he is our rewarder. In verse 12 of Exodus 20, he tells us that he not only delivered us out of the house of slavery, but he's delivered us into the land which the Lord your God gives you. He's rewarding us with a promise of heaven one day, that eternal dwelling place that we'll enjoy with God forever. What does it mean to esteem God alone? What does that mean exactly? I want you to notice in verse three, two components to this command, this most basic command, you shall have no other gods before me. First of all, shall have, let's break it down. Shall have, when I have a couple repeat the vows at a wedding ceremony, they say to have and to hold from this day forward. What does it mean to have somebody? Well, it means to possess them, to possess something of them exclusively. For example, I have a car. You heard about my car last week. I have a car. Nobody has a right to drive that car except me without my permission. It is my car. I have a house. It's my house. Nobody has a right to wander in or wander out of it without my possession permission. It is my possession. It is my house. I have a wife now, Amy. Nobody has a right to her affection except me. She is my wife. And the same is true for me. Nobody has a right to my affection except her. When we say we're to have no other gods, we are to have God and God exclusively. He said, I want to be the sole focus of your affection. You see, the problem with the Israelites, this is important to understand, was they never abandoned the true God. They just added to the true God with many false gods. God said, nope, doesn't work that way. Either you love me and serve me exclusively, or you don't have me at all. That's what it means to have. And then the second phrase, no other gods before me. You're to have no other gods before me. You know, um, the Israelites had spent 430 years in Egyptian slavery, and they had developed a habit of worshiping false gods. And during those 10 plagues, right before the Exodus, God showed how he was superior to all the other Egyptian gods, which the Israelites had become accustomed to and even began to worship. For example, for example, uh, the Egyptians believed that the Nile River was the bloodstream of the false god Osiris, who is the god of life and death. The 
uh, Nile River was the bloodstream. Well, when God turned that river into blood, essentially their false god Osiris, he bled out right before all the Egyptians and the Israelites. Or remember, they had another god, Ra, the god of the sun, the god of light. God showed his superiority by making everything dark, a great darkness descended over all the land of Egypt. They had another god they served, Hecate. You know who Hecate was? He was the god of the frogs. The Egyptians worshiped frogs and the god of the frogs, Hecate. So God said one day, oh, you like frogs, do you? <laughs> Choke on these. And millions of frogs came from the Nile River and infected every part of the Egyptians' lives. They saw the futility of other gods, but now here they are about to enter into the promised land. And God is saying, remember, you're to have no other gods before me. And the reason he makes that, the primary command is he knew they were about to enter a new land that even had greater temptations to idolatry than what they had experienced for 430 years in Egypt. Why were these, two, these new Canaanite gods even more powerful in their appeal? Well, first of all, because of Israel's prolonged habit of idolatry. You know, the longer you do something, the more it becomes a habit. Habits can either work for you or against you. Have you noticed that? A good habit works for you. Bad habits work against you. Uh, good habits become reflexive. They become almost second nature. Unfortunately, so do bad habits. I like to illustrate it this way. You know, I could take a piece of string and wrap it one time around my hand. If I did that, I could easily break free. But if I wrapped it three, four, five, six, even though it's a tiny piece of string, wrapping it four, five, six times would make it impossible for me to break free. That's why Proverbs 5.22 says, sin is like a cord. Repeated sin is like cords that ensnare us. And God realized that after 430 years of idolatry, the Israelites would be much more susceptible to idolatry in the new land of Canaan. But there was a second reason they faced an even greater temptation. It was because of the false gods' powerful appeal. These new false gods they would face in Canaan would have much more appeal than the Egyptian gods. I mean, let's be honest. It's one thing to worship a god of blood and frogs and light. But these new Canaanite gods, they would demand worship through gluttony, through drunkenness, through sexual immorality. They would be much more tempting. And that's why in Deuteronomy 6, Moses said, now before you... Go into this promised land, remember God's command, the great Shema of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God, and you're to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Verses six and seven, you're to teach your children about them. You're to obey him. Verses eight and nine, you're to remember God and fear and worship him. And that same truth is for us today. We're living in a land in which there are many appealing substitutes for God, but God says, my most primary command to you is to worship me, esteem me, and me alone. Why? Because I am your creator, your covenant maker, your redeemer, and your rewarder. 
Now let's get real practical for a moment. How do you know if God really has first place, he's sitting in that first chair in your life? In a little book called Laws That Liberate, one writer suggests three questions to ask yourself to know if God has first place in your life. Let me elaborate on these for just a moment. Question number one, this is so simple. What do you think about most often? What do you think about most often? That will tell you what your God is. In those quiet moments while you're driving or standing in a checkout line, or maybe drifting off to sleep at night, where do your thoughts naturally turn? You know how a compass works. You can shake up a compass and the needle bounces around, but very quickly it goes to true north, doesn't it? When your thoughts finally settle down, where are they directed? Money? Pleasure? A relationship? Or do your thoughts naturally go to God who has given you all of those blessings? What do you think about most often? Second question to ask yourself, whom are you trying to impress? Whom are you trying to impress? Let's be honest, all of us are trying to impress somebody. Maybe a mate, maybe a friend, maybe a work associate. You may be trying to impress yourself that you can climb the ladder and reach the pinnacle of success. During the Great Reformation, the battle cry was Coram Deo, Latin for before the eyes of God. Martin Luther and the great reformers were willing to give their life because they knew ultimately they were living their life for an audience of one. In the end, all really that mattered is pleasing God, impressing God. That's not an original thought. Paul voiced it 1,500 years before the Reformation. In 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 and 10, he said, For we have as our ambition, our goal, whether here or absent, to be pleasing to God. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one of us may be rewarded for what we've done in the body, whether it be good or worthless. What do you think about most often? Whom are you trying to impress? And the final question, what are you living for? What are you living for? Remember the old soap opera, One Life to Live? Never watched it, but I thought the title was intriguing. One Life to Live. That's an important truth. We all only have one life to live. What is your ultimate goal in life? Again, is it measured in possessions or pleasures or relationships? If God truly has first place in your life, you're living for one thing, to discover God's will for your life and then do it with all of your heart. The Christian mystic, Madame Guyon, said there are really only two principles competing principles that govern this universe. One principle is the one that has me at the center of my universe. The other is the one that has God at the center of the universe. It's one or the other. It can't be both. The person who has God at the center of his universe will have thoughts that turn to him naturally, 
We'll be living to impress him and him alone. And we'll seek to do his will, whatever the cost. On behalf of Dr. Robert Jeffress and everyone at First Baptist Dallas, thank you for joining us today. Our hope and prayer is that the biblical truth of this message will continue to be a blessing to you as you apply it to your life. For more information about First Baptist Dallas, we invite you to visit our website, firstdallas.org. May God bless you richly today. Thank you.